open your Bibles, please, in Luke's Gospel. Continuing in Luke's Gospel. <clears throat> we Luke chapter 4 still, and uh, what we're doing is um, we're looking at the program of God in dealing with Satan. We're looking at the role of the Lord Jesus Christ, and particularly now in his ministry on earth and the three and a half years of his ministry from the age of 30. We noticed last week in chapter 4 and verse 18 where the Lord Jesus has come into the synagogue at Nazareth and there he makes a very clear statement about the work he is now performing and going to do through the next three and a half years climaxing in his death, his burial and resurrection. In other words, he's making it clear what his mission statement is. And what is his statement of what he's going to do and what he is doing? He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. I've been set apart and empowered as the servant of Jehovah to come and to preach the gospel, the good news, to the poor. The devil never wants good news in his kingdom. He hath sent me. He has sent me. The word sent there is in a a perfect immediate tense. Now, I don't want to get complicated. The Greek language is so beautiful. It says things better than we can say it. He has sent me. What it means is, he has sent me and here I am right now. So you can imagine how they would have sat up and just stared at him. And then he says later on this scripture, he says, is right now being fulfilled in your ears. For he says, he sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to deliverance to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, and liberty for them that are oppressed. That's the summary. And finally, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. That word acceptable has in it the thought of receiving, a time when God will receive sinners. And it has in it the idea of propitiated, the time when God will be propitious and he will receive sinners through the gospel that I will preach, enabling the poor to be reached, the brokenhearted to be healed, the delivered, the captive to be delivered, and the blind to receive their sight, and those that are oppressed to find liberty. Now we're going to move on. When it was preached, they hated to hear it. The congregation rose up and threw him out. They wanted to slay him. They wanted to throw him over the hill. But he, with that dignity and that full assurance and in full control of the situation and of the mission that God has entrusted him with and the work which he's come to do, he just passes calmly through their midst and they're not able to touch him at all. They hated to think that he had a gospel that would reach out beyond the boundaries of themselves and their own nation, just as Naaman the Syrian, who wasn't a Jew, he wasn't of Israel, he was blessed. And just as the, the widow woman who of Sarepta, she was blessed and she didn't belong he says, no, I've got a message that's for the world. It's for the whosoever will. This will break the grip of Satan who's held the nations in blindness and has caught them as his captives and has oppressed them with the burden of sin. There's a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Now we're going to just lightly scan the next few chapters and pick out points and show you how the Lord Jesus advanced and he moved forward in the fulfilment of of the mission that he had come to do. Look at verse 31, please. In verse 31, and he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, notice this, and he taught them on the Sabbath day. 
They were astonished at his doctrine, at his teaching, for his word was with power. Now get that clearly, number one. Verse 36, they were amazed, they said among themselves, what a word is this? For with authority he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. Now I want you to notice he teaches, he teaches with authority and he speaks with power. And you can go through the book of Luke further and all the other gospels as well if you like and you'll find this kind of comment is made about the teaching of the Lord Jesus at least five times in the gospel of Luke alone where there is authority and there is power. And indeed, when you get to Matthew, it comes to the point where the people are astonished at his doctrine after the Sermon on the Mount, for he spake with authority and not like the scribes. When the Lord Jesus taught, he stated truth. When he stated truth, he stated it very plainly. He even used parables in case people would not be able to understand. He stated truth plainly. He stated, stated truth clearly and therefore, in that clarity of vocalization, and because of who he was, he spoke with absolute authority, using means whereby the people can understand, and they are astonished at his doctrine, at the way he goes about stating truth. So clearly, it's black and it's white. It's not fuzzy around the edges. It wasn't like the scribes. You see, the scribes, they did lots of teaching. But my word, they just loved to debate the issue. They were never really clear, always very wordy, never, you know, concise and outspoken. Actually, they compiled, what is it? They compiled that book, the Talmud. What was that? That was the really to outline all the teachings of Judaism. And you know what? They ended up with 613 commandments, not 10. You know what? They ended up with 2,711 pages of words. Actually, over two and a half million words. It took seven months, seven years, I'm sorry, and five months to actually recite it. They were so complicated. You get it? The Lord comes and he says, this is right, that is wrong. Fellow Christian, the message for us right now from this we must not complicate scripture. Do not add to it your intellect or anyone's intellect and the learnings of men and the philosophies of men and the theories of men. Because the voice of the church in the 21st century is getting to be very blurred, very fuzzy and not a clear statement of truth. Therefore the church is losing its authority. You use the word of God as the sword of the spirit of God, as the Lord Jesus used it in direct quotation when he was there in the temptations. And if you read through Luke, the people come to hear him and they're thronging for what? To hear what he says. What is it described at? They came to hear the word of God. When you've got the sword of the spirit, don't blunt the edge. You get it? Cut a clean line, it's a straight line, the word of truth. Because what is happening in all the debates of issues that come up, there's all so many different viewpoints, which of course we must consider, because the issue is so complicated. That's how people start. 
with their discussion of the thing, especially those that should be speaking the words of truth. You've got to look at the different points of view. You've got to think about the syntax and the grammar and the tenses. And, and then you've got to go and look at the culture and the background of the day. And there's a lot of things to be considered, you know. There's a lot of things written. There's a lot of maybes. There's a, a lot of what-ifs about the whole issue. And, um, you know, they're so full of perhapses. And then by the time you finish, what does it all mean? Well, it could mean anything. And it ends up meaning nothing. And the whole thing's being blurred. Look, right is right. Wrong is wrong, and sin is sin, and don't be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now that's the first thing I want you to bring out as the Lord Jesus moved in his mission. He, he is right in the arena of Satan. He's, un, he's in the kingdom of darkness, and he's shining pure, straight light. He's in a, a world where evil has blurred right and, and indeed muddied the whole issue, and people can't think clearly or straightly. And he speaks the word with power, he speaks it with authority, he speaks it with clarity, he speaks it with simplicity, and God uses that. And that's our role as the voice of the church in the 21st century. Verse 33 to 35, the synagogue, there was a man with the spirit of an unclean devil, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying, let us alone. That's a cry of terror. There's a man in the synagogue where there was really, was a, well, we'll say it's the house of God. It, it should have been a place where everybody was free and rejoicing. But here's a man who's oppressed, you see. He's got an unclean devil. He's a captive that needs to be delivered. And the devil, as uh, it were, in the man, he sees the Lord come in. And what does he do? He says, oh, come on, we'll, 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 we'll argue the point. No, he just cries out in terror. Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, just a word, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. The devil thrown him in the midst. He came out of him and he hurt him not. And they were all amazed. Next point. Not only is the word with authority and clarity and power, but part of the work of the Lord Jesus through his life is over over and over, having to deal with demons, Satan's emissaries, those who are the aiders in the work of darkness and evil. These are Satan's army. They are thick on the ground around Jerusalem. They're, they're constantly in the way of the Lord. Why? Because Satan is concentrating all his forces in the area where God is at work. He hasn't got enough fallen angels to throw them all over the world, if you understand what I mean. He's not going to send them to the North Pole. It's Jerusalem where God is at work. Now that's where we've been at and that's where we're currently at in the Western world. It is through the Western world that the voice of Christianity has sounded out to the uttermost parts of the earth. Amazingly so, but particularly so in the last few centuries. There is absolutely no doubt that Satan has concentrated his efforts and used his army in the Western nations in order to sow the seeds of evil and to seize power. And see, to overcome the progress of the work and the word of God, even in our country. And in the days of Jerusalem, when the Lord was there, they were thick on the ground. And they're still thick on the ground, may I put it that way, in the world in which we are currently living. Men and women are demonized. It's not normal the way they behave. It's not normal the blindness that they've got. It's not normal the way they think. It is perverted. It is perverse. It is anti-God. It is anti-Christian. It is powerful. They've risen to places of power within our nation. 
and they are driven by diabolical intent and evil intention and the agents of Satan himself. We need to understand that. Now, there's only one weapon in our warfare, and it's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And the Lord Jesus confronts these demons, he dismisses them, and he destroys them, and that is a characteristic of his ministry. I've just picked that one out in the first part, here in Luke 4, 5, 4, and it goes right through the ministry of the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus on earth. You never find the evil spirits confronting him or withstanding him. Once he speaks the word, that's it. The minute he comes into the temple, they're terrified of him. And he speaks a word and it's over. They never attack him. He speaks and they fall. For you see, what has happened is he has defeated their master in the first place. Before him they are powerless and at his word they must fall. Stay with the clear statements of scripture and the teaching and speaking of the word of God. That's the next point. Verse 38, what happens there? He arose out of the synagogue, he entered into Simon's house, and Simon's wife's mother was taken with a great fever, and they besought him for her, and he stood over her, and he rebuked the fever. It's exactly the same as when the Lord Jesus rebukes the demon. Now, he didn't put his hand out and touch her and make her well. He rebuked the fever, right? And it left her immediately, and she arose and ministered unto him. Here's the next feature, as it were, of what the Lord Jesus does. In Simon, Simon Peter is going to be used mightily in the advancing army of the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ who will take into the world the gospel, the whole world, to receive the gospel. He'll stand up. And the day of Pentecost, and 3,000 captives will be delivered. 3,000 blind people will receive their sight, if you see, spiritually. Later on, 5,000 are going to be doing the same thing. The same thing's going to happen at the gates of the beautiful temple. Now, in this man's house, there is something that is hindering the peace and the usefulness of the home. And it's his mother-in-law who is sick. Now, it's not a normal sickness. It clearly isn't just that. Because the Lord doesn't touch and heal, he actually rebukes. Something of Satan has got into that home and caused a disruption when in that home is a, one of the very men that the Lord Jesus intends to use and in his own divine purpose is chosen for a massive job of taking the keys and opening the kingdom to the Jew and to the Gentile in the preaching of the gospel. And he stands there and he rebukes. He rebukes. He deals with that source which is causing hindrance to the plan and purpose of God and the woman arises and she ministers to him. Now every time you find there's a rebuking and a deliverance for a person, you'll find in the scriptures, in Luke we'll see it as we go, they, the, the person comes back and serves the Lord. Man of an unclean spirit, he goes on his way, he's glorifying God. One minute empowered by Satan, the next minute glorifying God. That's a captive set free. You see, that's someone who's oppressed, who's been delivered. This is a man restored in a right relationship with God. And another one, it says, he wanted to be with him. Isn't that lovely? He never did before. Not when the demon had control. When someone's not saved, they don't want the Lord to be with them. The transformation is tremendous. Now, that's a principle that I'm bringing out from this simple, simple, uh, um, this simple episode because it is repeated over and all, and it, it sets over and over through the gospel, 
and it gives you some idea of the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. And she ministers to them. And what happens, and this is just something very beautiful, and it's the way the day ends. The sun was setting. Right? And all that had any sick with divers' diseases brought them to him. He laid his hands on every one of them and he healed them. And look, this is one of those word pictures of Luke. Would you just read that slowly and in your mind picture the whole thing? The sun was setting. It's evening. All they that had any sick brought them to him. Think of the crowds gathering. He lays his hands on every one of them and heals them. And the devils come out crying, Thou art the Christ, the Son of God. And he rebuking them, suffered them not to speak. For they knew that he was Christ. Get the picture again. You see the setting sun on the horizon over there? Can you imagine all these people coming out into the street where the Lord Jesus is. Can you see the touch of the Master's hand as he lays out his, puts out his hand and he touches them and demons are driven out. The captives are set gloriously free. The setting sun, the needy crowd, the healing Christ and the touch of the Master's hand. That beautiful. That even ere the sun was set, the sick, O Lord, around thee lay. Oh, in what divers pains they met, and with what joy they went away. O Saviour Christ, our woes dispel, for some are sick and some are sad. Some of us have never loved thee well, and some have lost the love they had. Thy touch is still its ancient power. No word from thee can fruitless fall here in this solemn evening hour and in thy mercy heal us all. There's many more verses to that lovely poem. I wish I could have written it. But you see the man that wrote it caught the spirit of the whole thing. And there is this lesson. We live in this infested, demon-infested world. We live in the kingdom of darkness Satan loves to be the ruler of the world and hold men in their blindness. We advance the cause of the kingdom of God by using the clear word of God. We preach the word. You say, well, I'm not a good preacher. We teach the word. You say, I'm not a very good teacher. Well, go and live the word. Right? Because that is the power of God. That is the sword of the Spirit. That is the weapon which the Lord Jesus has clearly set before us is the one which he uses. Now, what happens in chapter 5? In chapter 5, what happens there is actually that the Lord Jesus recruits three fishermen, Peter, James, and John. Remember, the boat was there. He went out in the boat to teach the people, and then he taught Simon Peter how to fish, right? He taught him how to fish. He said, this let down the net, throw it into the deep, let down the net. Oh, Lord, I'm a, I'm a first-class fisherman, I... I know the time of day, I know the weather, I know the sea. I've toiled all night, there's nothing out there. Hey? Which is just, but I'll, you, I'll do it just to satisfy you. And of course he does. The net's full. He's absolutely smitten with his conscience that he would, as it were, almost deride, almost mock at what the Lord suggested. 
suddenly he realised he was the master of ocean and seas and skies. Yes, he was standing before one to whom he must bow. And then the Lord says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And what's going to happen here, you see, is in this, and in verse 27, he then calls Matthew the publican. And what's happening here is he's gathering together the mighty band. Those 12 men that are going to be used, all of them, in the fulfillment of the work of God and the bringing in of the kingdom of God. When you get down to verse 12, there's a leper. And he cleanses a leper. I mean, a leper. This man was a captive. This man was oppressed. This man had a burden that was absolutely terrible. It affected him socially because he couldn't just mingle with the crowds. It ruined that part of his social life. As a matter of fact, he had to go along the streets ringing a little bell, didn't he, calling out, unclean, 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 and they all kept away from him. Yeah, we think we had troubles in COVID. Imagine being a leper, hey? Imagine, imagine the misery of that man. And he was deformed, you see, from the disease that he had. And he was, as it were, sick, certainly sick. And spiritually it affected him too because he couldn't go into the temple. All right? This man's a captive in every department of his life. And the Lord, well, what happens there? He says to the Lord, he says to him, look, if you, the Lord puts out his hand and he says, I will. The leper says, if you will, you can make me clean. And the Lord says, I will. And he puts out his hand and he touches him. He'd never known the touch of the hand ever since the day he got leprosy. Never. Ah, the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that's wrought by the touch of their master's hand. Go home and Google the old violin. Hey? Go home and Google it. Beautiful poem. Takes up the touch of Christ and its power so beautifully. So you see, there's another example of what of a captive being set free. You get to verse 17, and you've got the paralyzed man. We had it last week in particular. And it's got a very beautiful story. Remember in verse 16, he withdrew himself into the wilderness and prayed. This is before. You see, that's where he got his source of power and strength from as he lived in communion with God as the servant of God, dependent on God, full of the Holy Spirit of God, doing the work of God and destroying and undoing the works of the devil. And he was teaching and the Pharisees, the doctors of the law, they came out of every town in Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. The power of the Lord was present. And behold, men brought up to him on a bed a man which was taken with a palsy. In other words, he's paralyzed. And they tried to bring him in, but they couldn't get in because there was such a crowd. And so what did they do? They went up, climbed on the roof, and they let him down on his bed through the roof right to the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this man has got paralyzed, paralyzed right? Now, his paralysis, it would seem quite fair to say, is because of sin. Many diseases produce neurological illness which cause paralysis, and particularly sinful illnesses and the kind of some problem of paralysis from sinful behaviour and the consequent diseases were quite prevalent in this day. Now, the Lord looks at the man... And what does he do? Does he deal with the consequences of this man's lifestyle? Does he do that and immediately direct the attention straight out, straight away to the fact that this man's paralysed? No. He doesn't deal with the consequences. He deals with the root of the problem and it's sin. And he says these incredible words. He says to him, 
man, thy sins are forgiven thee. Now let's realise the whole point. This is the ultimate deliverance for a captive. It's not just to get your legs back and walk. The forgiveness of sins is the ultimate lifting of the burden that oppresses, that breaks the heart and brings brokenness of heart within and sadness and sorrow and sickness and disease and devilment and bedevilment. You see that? It's the forgiveness of sins that sets the captive free. It's the ultimate liberty, the ultimate deliverance, it's the ultimate healing. And in verse 25, the man rises up demonstrating that the forgiveness has come to him because the consequences of his sin has been removed by the fact that he can now walk and he takes up his bed and what happens? He departs to his own house and he is glorifying God. You say, well, everybody's going to be absolutely thrilled about that. They say, well, we've seen strange things today. Verse 29 and 30. 27, Matthew is called. Matthew the tax gatherer. Oh, he's a bit of a renegade, this man. He's not a good man, really. He's not. He's a traitor to his own people. And he's in league with uh, the Romans. Yes, he is in with Caesar. Caesar says, you go and get the taxes off that group of people over there and give them to me. And he says, I'll do that, sir. And he rats on his own people, you know. He's a traitor. He goes and gets the taxes plus a fair bit more and puts it in his pocket, oppressing them. And then he goes back and he sells himself out to Caesar and gives the money. So he's got a foot in both camps and he's doing very well for himself. And the Lord just goes, walks by as he's sitting there at his job, at his receipt of taxes. He says, ah, follow me, follow me. Look at the power in that word. I heard the call come follow. That was all. He arose, left all, and he followed. God help you and me to follow when we hear his call. And what does he do? He makes a feast in verses 29 for 30, and he calls everybody else the likes of himself, publicans and sinners. Can you see this massive group come together, this party, or as it were, in his house? All his old companions, you know? All the ones that were in the same problem that he had and were as bad as himself. they all there, and you say, well, that's all very well, but what next? But the Lord is there. Can you see the poor are going to be evangelised? The people that the Israelites would not want much to do with at all because they're tax gatherers and they are sinners and they don't deserve a thing except to be shut out of the blessings of Israel. And the Lord Jesus is there because the power of the Lord wants to heal all. This is the acceptable year of the Lord. This is the gospel of salvation that must be preached and captives must be set free. And you think, this is absolutely beautiful. The unreachable are being reached. Everybody's going to be absolutely thrilled. But the Pharisees and the scribes, why does your master eat with tax gatherers and sinners? They can't even rejoice in the gospel going to the poor. And you get into chapter 6. What's in chapter 6? There's a big argument about the Sabbath. And on the Sabbath day, he was the disciples were eating their corn and the Pharisees were doing their criticising. And then he goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. It says that in verse 6. And he wants to teach there. And the first thing that hits him, or as it meets your eye, is there's a, there's a man there. And he's got a withered hand. His right hand is withered. The poor man. Look at the oppression he has to work under. He has to labour under. A hand that won't work. That has to be, you know, it has to be the very hand that you use all the time. And you think, oh... 
oh, the Lord's going to fix this. And you think everybody in the, Sabbath, in the synagogue is just watching eagerly, thinking this is going to get sorted out. This man's going to get, this captive's going to get delivered, right? This poor man that's so oppressed, he's going to have his oppression lifted. But oh no, they're there. And it says that they were scribes and Pharisees closely watching him, is the word, whether he would actually heal on the Sabbath day. Would he break one of their rules? Because then they'd have an accusation against him. And of course the Lord just stands there and says, well, basically he says to them, do you want me to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath day? Which is good? Which is the right thing to do, good or evil? They can't answer. And he just goes to the man and he says, come in the midst, stand forth. He asks the question, he says, stretch forth your hand. And of course he's healed. And that's very beautiful. Again, again, that's very beautiful. But... They were filled with madness. Notice this, because I'm developing something as I go through. They were furious. And they actually got together and had a little council of war. What are they going to do with this man and what he's doing? Verse 12, what does he do? He goes to the mountain to pray and he continues all night in prayer to God. You see, he is moving forward in Satan's territory and the rumblings of all opposition are starting to be heard and a few dark clouds, as it were, are gathering on the horizon as Satan is steadily trying to get his forces back together again in order that he might be able to attack. But the Lord Jesus, in verse 13, calls his twelve disciples and he chooses the twelve disciples I should say he is amassing as it were this army who with him will move on to victory twelve men who will go into all the world and preach the gospel that's what's going to happen men of whom it will be said in the Acts of the Apostle they've turned the world upside down no they haven't they stood it on his head on its feet not on his head they put it up the right way but you see What's going to happen? They're going to declare the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God will come in power. And for the rest of the chapter, he teaches the principles of the kingdom that he is bringing in. And it's beautiful to read the Sermon on the Mount in its fullness because you'll find out what the kingdom of God is like, what is great in the kingdom, how God blesses in his kingdom, who God, <coughs> God blesses in his kingdom. And he teaches the principles, and it's in such contrast to the principles of the kingdom of Satan and of darkness and of how it works and how Satan works. And then what goes on? We get to chapter 7. I'm just scanning. You'll have to follow yourself. But look, it's beautiful. You were getting a picture built up here, and it climaxes in the last six months of the life of the Lord Jesus. In chapter 7, verses 1 to 10, he heals a man that was going to die. In verses 11 through to 16, he raises a man who is dead. All right? Now get the picture. That's the, the core of what happens. This centurion, this soldier, he's got a servant and he's sick and he's going to die. He beseeches the Lord to heal him, come down and heal him. And the Lord is on the way to do it. And he says, you don't need to even come down into the house. Just stay and speak a word and my servant will be healed. The Lord speaks the word. And the man that was about to die, right? He is made well. And then they're so excited, right? Came to pass afterwards that he's going to a city called Nain. And many of his disciples went with him. And are much people. There's a huge crowd now around him, right? And it looks like this is the victory march. 
And he's going towards the city of Nain. And as he's approaching the gates, you can see the crowd there. They're really hopeful and joyful. And the center of their attention is this rabbi, this Nazarene, this Jesus, the deliverer, the healer. There's joy, expectation. And no sooner do they get up near the gate than another crowd come out. And look at the difference. They're somber and they're sad. There's a woman there, she's broken-hearted. She's one of the broken-hearted. She's a widow, she's lost her only son. And there's an open coffin, because that's what the beer means. It's an open coffin. Lying in there is a young man, and he is dead. And you can see the contrast. There's sadness and there's sorrow. There's death has got another victim. It's holding another man captive. The crowd are sad, the broken-hearted woman. They're there in sympathy, and then there comes the Christ who's going to set a captive free. You see, you must understand, the existence of death is Satan's greatest victory. Do you realise that? That's his greatest victory of all, the existence of death in humanity in the world. There is sin in the world, and by sin there came death. By one man there came sin, by sin there came death. But Satan originated the sin, causing the one man to fall and to introduce death as a penalty upon all of mankind. It was his greatest victory. Death is spiritual, don't forget that. Number one, we are dead in trespasses and sin, and we need that resurrection out of that death, all right? My word, we need to be brought to life again. Instead of being dead towards God, cut off from the life of God, with no hope of a, an everlasting or an eternal life because of sin. Death one, spiritual. Death two, physical. Right? Now the Lord Jesus is going to preach a gospel that will deal with death. And there's a man who is ready to die, and he speaks. There is a man who has already died. And he moves into the sad funeral procession and he touches the open coffin and he says, young man, arise. And he demonstrates clearly here that he is the one who has power over death. And death, which is Satan's greatest victory, he will deal with and overcome him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Right? So you see how it's opening up, this whole mission is opening up, and the fullness of what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing, even in the work of his life, firstly, and we'll deal later with that, it's essential that he lived this life, it's essential that he did this work, before he did the great work of final victory in the resurrection and in his ascension, through his death. Right, verses 39... Our 36 onwards, what happens? <clears throat> the Lord Jesus is now asked to go and have dinner in Simon the Pharisee's house. You know, this would have been, <laughs> this would have been one of those socially tense. Uh, you know, you have people in your house sometimes and it's just not going too well. There's an underlying little bit of... <laughs> well, you can imagine this, there's Simon sitting there. He's one of these men that would join in the criticism. Oh, he's heard all about the, the, the discussions they've had about how they can deal with this man that's really upsetting things rather badly, very, very badly. And uh, <clears throat> it's a very tense atmosphere in there at table. 
Now they would have been at table, the table would have been only about so high, it's just a fairly low table. And they used to lie at table in the sense that you would, if that was the table, you would sit down on the ground, but it would be down this high, down this low, and your feet would go out like that. And you know, they're eating maybe, whatever. They haven't been very polite to this visitor, this Simon the Pharisee hasn't. He hasn't washed his feet or even offered any means whereby he can be refreshed with his feet washed. And then suddenly through the doorway there comes, could you believe it, one of the worst characters in the city. Everybody knows her for what she is. She's a sinner. The atmosphere from the pharisaical side from, oh dear, dear, Simon would have been bristling. Couldn't you feel it? You could have cut it with a knife, but she's still coming. Where does she come? She comes to the feet of Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? That's the most wonderful place for any sinner to ever come. I just want to ask you if you've ever been at the feet of Jesus and come with the burden of your sin. Oh, it's a lovely picture. It's a beautiful picture. She's weeping. She's brokenhearted. Do you see it again? See the mission statement? The brokenhearted? The captive? You see that? The outcast? The burden, the oppressed. And she just says very simply, he says very simply to her, woman, he says, your sins are forgiven. I'm here to heal the brokenhearted. I'm here to declare the acceptable year of the Lord. And the truth is, I am here as the Christ who receives sinful men and women. She loves much. She's been forgiven much. At the end of it says, she, he says to her, you go in peace. And you think, oh, isn't that lovely? Even a Pharisee's heart must be touched to see a poor woman in that state so repentant, freed from the burden of a life of sin and the stigma that all that goes with it and the rejection and the shame. But oh, no, 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 no. You don't get any such response at all from a man like a Pharisee like Simon. Sadly, sadly, nothing really changes and the man is really rebuked by the message the Lord Jesus gives him. Now we move on to chapter 8, and look what's happening. Came to pass afterwards, he went throughout every city and village, preaching, showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and certain women which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's servant, steward, and Susanna, and many others which ministered unto him of their substance. You can see the thing is growing, as it were. The army's marching on, and his purpose is being fulfilled, the mission that he came to do. It's growing and it's moving. And he continues to teach them, and it seems like nothing can stop him. But, in this very chapter, what happens? Later on, there is a terrible storm. All right? Now, I want to stop and get you to get the picture. We are now moving for about two years of the Lord's ministry. This is what we've covered so far. Now, Satan has been... He attacked him in the temptations personally. He's been in the synagogue at Nazareth and he's got in through the congregation, the general congregation, in order to oppose and he intended to see the Lord Jesus Christ destroyed in the earlier part of the mission. He intended that. Failed. He has spread his demons everywhere, as if in some pathetic way, such fallen creatures who are even subservient to Satan, that's how low they are, 
would be able in some way to trip up or to hinder the work and to stain everything where the Lord Jesus went. Didn't work. Now he's now gone, he's moved, not just working through the common people in the synagogue or through his own agents and the demons. He's getting into the upper echelons and strata of power and authority. And he's been working through the scribes and he's been working in the hearts of the Pharisees. You know, they were always there to criticise. And the man with a withered hand gets healed and they're watching, ready to accuse, and they're enraged. And, and then there's all about the Sabbath where they're wanting to get another chance to get against him. And, and then they have the feast at Math with Matthew and he goes to that feast and they're there to criticise. And then there's the, the, the paralytic man. He gets, he gets his sins forgiven and they think, this is fantastic. No, they don't. They say... This man's blaspheming. It's getting worse and worse, you see. He's working his way up. Now, in chapter 8, he actually used, Satan actually uses the elements, the wind, to attack the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you have a look at it? Read it for yourself. I'll read it through with you, actually, this time. What does he say? <clears throat> Came to pass on a certain day, verse 22, he went into a ship with his disciples. He said, let's go over to the other side of the lake. And they launched forth. Now, please notice the Lord is in control. The Lord gives the command. They are moving totally in the will of God. They're not on a pleasure cruise. They're not even going fishing. They're going to the other side because there's a work to be done. As they sail, he fell asleep. That's another beautiful picture of the true humanity of the Lord Jesus, weary and tired, but peaceful enough in his spirit and his mind to sleep. There came down a storm of wind on the lake, stirred up those waves tremendously. Look at it. They were filling with water. They were in jeopardy. Now these men were hardened seamen. They knew this lake like the back of their hands. But they were really terrified. And they came to him. And they said, Master, they wake him up. Master, Master, we perish. We are perishing. That's what they're saying. They also said in another gospel... Do you not care? We are perishing. He rose. He rebuked. Remember he rebuked the demons? Remember he rebuked the disease? The fever of Simon Peter's mother-in-law? He is the same words. It's rebuking the wind and the raging of the water. And they ceased. He said, peace be still. And actually what he said was, be muzzled. It's like an angry dog that's snarling with open jaws running to attack. He said, be muzzled. And just that word. And there was a great calm. You see, this is no ordinary storm. You understand this. It's not an ordinary storm. This is Satan now using the elements in order what to do to destroy the whole enterprise of God. In that one little boat on the lake, there was Christ. There was the Saviour. There was the Messiah. And there was all of the men who were going to be used in the furtherance of the kingdom of God, the disciples, the apostles. And all Satan had to do was sink that boat and he thought, I've got the thing, it's over. And the Lord just sleeps through all the trauma, just sleeps through. He's in total control, just as he's able to pass through the midst of an angry mob outside of Nazareth upon the hill and they can't touch him. As the demons daren't even defy him, let alone, or even argue with him, so now he just stands in the calmness on that boat and he speaks a word and Satan's power is broken and the wind stops and the waves drop and he turns 
he turns to his disciples and he said, he rebukes them. He doesn't, sorry, he speaks to them. He says, where's your faith? Oh, we say, that's a very unsympathetic way to go about things, Lord. I mean, they've had such a trauma. No, they might. We should really counsel them. We should really draw alongside and say, you know, work through this issue. You know, you need to debrief. That's how we behave today. It's getting ridiculous. It's getting utterly... The Lord rebukes them and says, where is your faith? Did you conceive, he says, as it were, after all this time of being with me, do you think God would allow his enterprise to fail? There is one of which we say no waters can swallow the ship where lies, the master of ocean and earth and skies. Fellow Christians, never the message is, never allow yourself to be overwhelmed by the rising wind and the beating storm and the rising tide of evil that is all around us today and coming forth in a way that is being fanned by the breath of de- the devil himself. That's what it is, the wind. Right? We are in God's hands. The church is in God's hands. The gates of hell will never prevail against the program of God, as he says, on this rock I will build my church. And the Christ who sleeps in the boat, who speaks to the storm, arrives on the other side, as it says in verse 26, nothing's changed, they arrived in the country of the Gadarenes, which is over against Galilee, and it's there that he meets the man possessed with demons, this time thousands of them called legion. And it's exactly the same. The work goes on. Nothing can change and nothing will change. Although there's so many of them, the man is delivered, gloriously delivered. They say, well, we've got to go somewhere. Please let us go somewhere. Well, you can go into those pigs over there. They shouldn't be having pigs. It's an unclean animal anyway. And the pigs probably go mad and race down the hill and go splash into the sea and they're all drowned. And all the people of the town come out and they say, oh, isn't this tremendous, you know, this poor man that was possessed with demons who was so badly captive and so dreadfully oppressed that they couldn't keep him in a house. He would break the door down, right? He had to live in the wilderness. They couldn't tie him up with chains because he'd break them and snap them. The poor man was twisted, possessed, out of his mind, completely and totally and absolutely captive to evil and every kind of perversion. And he'd been the terror of the town, if you get what I mean. You wouldn't go near him. You avoided where he was. You had to for safety. And he's, what is he doing? He's just sitting. He's actually, he's clothed, if you like. And we'll use the word sensible and in his right mind. And he's got back to his own house and he publishes how great things God has done for him. And you think, this is wonderful. They say, oh, no, no, hold it. We've lost our pigs. Our money, our, our lifestyle, what we once were, how we lived. We've lost that. That matters more to us than a soul that's been set free. Don't ever think you'll convince the world as they're in the grip of Satan and blinded in unbelief that you will ever convince them that Christianity or what Christ is to the believer is better than what they've got. No. Only the preaching of the word of God and the power of God 
can open the eyes of the blind. And until the eyes of the blind are open, the soul will never be set free. And they'll never come like a weeping woman to the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And never know the joy of sins forgiven. But we must preach the word of God. The only answer for the soul's need for sin that must be taken away. And for transgressions that must be removed. And so we move on into chapter 9. And I'll just be closing there. In verses 1, 2 and 6, he calls the 12 disciples and he sends them out. And every one of them is now going to be used in the continuing program of God. And just in passing, let me say this, even Judas. Judas was sent out here to do the work. And I could prove to you from Scripture (laughs) that people got saved through Judas' preaching. They didn't get saved through Judas. They got saved through the word. You say, well, well, that doesn't sound right. Well, I, I, I was trying to cut short. I will tell you, I'll prove it, because it's a sweeping statement. It struck me when reading the Sermon on the Mount that Judas goes out into the night, right? Of course he does. He's not going to be used further. But he actually, the Lord Jesus actually said, he who receives whomsoever I send receives me. He who receives me receives my Father. In other words, he said, there was a day when I sent Judas out with a message. The man who listened to Judas was not receiving Judas. He's receiving someone I sent with my message. That person received me and that stands. It's not the methodology, as it were, of the transmission of the message. It is the fact that that person has received the message. And in this incredible way, even Judas is used in a positive way, dare I use that word. Because that's what God is able to do with all of Satan's intentions. That's what he's able to do. And of course we know even Judas was used in the fulfilment of the purposes and plans and diabolical plans of Satan, but the purposes and plans of God. Now, from this point on in verse 6, and here we must stop, we are moving on to the last Six months of the life of the Lord Jesus. And I just want you to be prepared for the next time we move because at this point, we've only got six months left in his life, there's a change in the direction. He sets his face as a flint steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. There seems to be a different emphasis now from here forward in the program and the fulfilment of the program which he has declared. It's almost like a change of battle plans. You look at verse 22. He starts to teach very clearly the Son of Man must suffer. This is not dealing now with apparent victory and triumph. Must suffer many things, be rejected of the elders, of the chief priests, the scribes, and be slain and be raised again the third day. Let me read it again. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And he must be slain and he must be raised on the third day. Clearly, suffer, rejection, death, resurrection. It must die because through death he will destroy him who had the power of death, that is the the devil. He must rise again to prove that the power of death has been broken. This is the final climax of the mission. 
This is when the greatest work of all will be done. When not the effects of sin and the consequences will be dealt with, but sin itself will be atoned for. And the root cause of all of man's captivity and estrangement from God will be dealt with once and for all by the atoning sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ when there upon that cross on that hill far away in that Golgotha, Calvary, suffering, death, darkness, penalty, punishment, atonement, burial, resurrection, glorious ascension, the heavens open, the throne fill, the victory complete. We'll paint the picture of the last six months and the final triumph when Satan is finally dealt with. His power is absolutely broken. And all we're waiting for today is not to see his power broken again in that sense of the word. We just want to see him destroyed. That'll be Revelation 20. May the Lord encourage us again this morning in his name. <clears throat> Lord, we just give thanks for the, the sweeping truths of the holy scriptures which we have read. We give thanks for the triumphs of our Lord Jesus Christ. We love to follow those footsteps of the man of Galilee, of the Christ of Calvary. As for three and a half years he worked his way through the multitudes, as he declared the news of the kingdom of God and finally took that way which would lead him to the cross. And this morning we are not staying looking on earth, we are not staying looking at the cross except to look and see that it's empty. We're going to look above like we've been hearing this morning and worshipping this morning, lifting up our eyes high above where the Lord is seated at the right hand of God and the cross is empty but the throne is full. And we rejoice in that and seek humbly the needed strength and faith to press on in the battle and to fight the good fight of faith and to preach and declare the word of God. Lord, help us, we pray. Bless us as we separate and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Ghost be our blessing and our portion in these days that lie ahead through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.